Chapter Five of That Affair at Portstead Manor by Gladys Edson Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mr. Robert Sylvester. Mr. Clavering went back to bed after his capture of Robert Sylvester and remained there until called by his valet. By breakfast time, Robert had slept off his unsteadiness of gait and before the meal was over sauntered nonchalantly into the room. The manner of his arrival was known to all but apparently Mr. Clavering felt more embarrassed over it than did he. Robert's chief concern seemed to be to ingratiate himself with his brother, who plainly resented this addition to the house-party. Lady Ursula was manifestly very fond of her scapegrace younger brother, though somewhat disconcerted by his coming. He appeared fond of her, too, in a careless, boyish fashion, and there came an angry flash in his eye when Portstead directed some sarcastic remark to her. A similar flash leaped into Meldrum's eyes, and he brought his clenched hand down upon the table. There was a marked resemblance between Lady Ursula and Robert. Both had fair hair shading to red, dark eyes, and clear-cut, delicate features. But in the case of Robert, the mouth was loose, the chin weak, and the complexion becoming pasty. Yet, in spite of these defects, there was much that was attractive in his face. If it lacked the ascetic strength of Portstead's, it lacked also its repellent hardness. Elsie Baring was visibly confused by Robert's presence, and piqued by the nonchalance of his greeting. But to judge from the way his glance constantly travelled back to her, his nonchalance was assumed. He expressed a proper sympathy over Lady Pevensey's loss, and Mr. Clavering wondered why Portstead's keen, cold eye rested so sharply on him. Altogether it was an uncomfortable meal. Mr. Clavering noticed that Lady Ursula still kept up the fiction of a sprained ankle, and being unwilling to suspect her of worse motives, persuaded himself that it might be mainly for the sake of bringing out the protective tenderness of Meldrum's nature. He insisted upon fairly carrying her to the terrace, and ensconcing her in the most comfortable chair, banked with innumerable cushions. He gave up a game of bowls with Colonel Darrell and Sir Gerald Leslie, always his favourite sport, to sit by her and amuse her. It was good to see how his blue eyes, rather severe and determined, softened when they met hers, and how the bronzed pink of his complexion deepened. There, thought Mr. Clavering, are two people who might be happy if... If what? He glanced towards the tall, spare frame of Portstead, who was regarding them disapprovingly. Why should he be the arbiter of his sister's destiny? Why should he assume toward her the authority of a master, rather than the affection of a brother? Portstead was an excellent fellow, of course, but he was immensely unpleasant to live with. Small wonder he had never found a woman willing to link her life to his. But, pondered Mr. Clavering, did he know any reason outside of politics why Meldrum should not marry his sister? Anything against Meldrum? It was unanswerable. Mr. Clavering still felt a little fearful of meeting the railries of the ladies and wandered away by himself, spending the morning in fruitless search for clues. At luncheon, Robert Sylvester asked his brother for a few minutes' private conversation, but Portstead answered curtly that he and his secretary were occupied with state papers, and that he would not be at liberty to attend to personal matters until late in the evening. Robert cast a furtive, hopeless glance at his sister, who shook her head as hopelessly. "'I should be glad, Lord Meldrum,' remarked Portstead, in cold, distinct tones at the conclusion of the meal, "'if you could come to the library to-night at ten. I do not expect that I shall be free until then. 
there are certain matters which you and I must come to agreement upon. Cecil, cried his sister imploringly. I have decided, he responded, with an air of finality. There was dumb misery in Lady Ursula's eyes, but she said nothing more. That afternoon the library was closed to the guests, and Mr. Clavering, in his wanderings about the garden, saw through the leaded glass door of the library Lord Portstead and his secretary hard at work upon a pile of official-looking documents. "'Has it ever occurred to you, Mr. Clavering,' queried a soft voice at his ear, "'that Lord Portstead is somewhat of a tyrant to his sister?' Mr. Clavering turned to survey Mary Grey displeasedly. "'I do not think it proper to discuss my host and hostess,' he replied with emphasis. "'No, of course not,' she murmured contritely. "'You know best what is proper.' but again there was that inscrutable light in her eyes that made him so uncomfortable. What a way she had of stealing about, and what a strange taste always to dress in grey. There was something uncanny about her. "'Mr. Clavering,' resumed the soft voice with its hint of mockery, "'Lady Pevensey is getting impatient for you to discover the thief, or at least some clue to his identity. She will give you three more days in which to investigate, and then she really thinks that she will send for that woman detective, Mercedes Quero, of whom Miss Baring spoke. Mr. Clavering was at once on his mettle. Three days should be ample time for my investigations, but I must beg Lady Pevensey to remember that the necklace was not missing until last night. I hardly think that even this famed Mercedes Quero could have recovered it in so short a time. Oh, I am sure she could not, returned Mary Grey, with perhaps a little too much warmth to be wholly sincere. In fact, I told Lady Pevensey so, and advised her to give you three days more. Mr. Clavering reddened. This girl was actually patronizing him. Oh, but this was too much. She must be shown her place. That was kind of you, Miss Gray, he remarked pompously. But I scarcely think that your, ah, uh, intervention was necessary. Lady Pevensey would possibly have come to the same decision herself. Oh, I fear not, she gently demurred. Mr. Clavering bestowed upon her an exceedingly haughty, aristocratic stare, and was rewarded by a piquant and, yes, irresistible smile. He was furious with himself for yielding to it. "'Mr. Clavering, let us be friends,' she exclaimed impulsively. "'Let us work together. We both have strong motives for wishing to discover the thief. Why should we not join forces?' But Mr. Clavering had withdrawn into his shell. He was not going to allow this young woman to beguile him with her soft, sly ways. "'You will pardon me, Miss Gray,' he replied with dignity but in a matter of this kind I prefer to work alone. She was not at all crestfallen, but flashed another smile at him, absolutely without pique. "'You are quite right, Mr. Clavering,' she agreed sweetly. "'By working alone we shall be better able to form independent conclusions. "'Of course you have accounted by now for the disappearance of the person who fell downstairs. "'Probably you have investigated the North Wing?' "'Well, no, he hadn't.' Before he could explain that he felt a natural delicacy in poking about a section of the house obviously close to guests, Mary Gray had slipped away into the park. Mr. Clavering pondered long over his conversation with this strange young woman. Was she honest, or was she not? Was it his duty, as she had suggested, to investigate the North Wing? He hardly thought so. It need not be that the person who fell down the stairs was the thief. A light suddenly broke in upon him. Mary Gray wished him to believe so but why should she wish it? Why, indeed, save to divert suspicion from herself? He made up his mind, then and there, that he would abandon his absurd distrust of Meldrum and devote himself to studying Mary Gray. With this resolution, he went to dress for dinner. 
This meal was even more markedly unpleasant than the preceding. The dining hall, seen by the subdued light of shaded lamps, was a place of shadow and gloom, a long lofty apartment heavily raftered by huge beams of black oak that hung like a pall above one's head. Here one's voice would involuntarily become hushed, and one's spirit oppressed even without the constraining presence of Portstead. The Earl had allowed himself a recess from his labours. He had rigid ideas of what was owing to his guests, but the younger people, at least, felt that his presence was a courtesy with which they would have been willing to dispense. Robert's ingratiating manner was gone, and he appeared sulkily defiant, deliberately introducing topics that he knew were offensive to his brother. In vain, Lady Ursula sought to turn the conversation. From racing and ballet dancers, Robert drifted to Sir Julian Travers, the sporting baronet, whose name had long been taboo in polite circles. Travers, who had dissipated his own and his mother's fortune, and had finally fled England to escape the consequences of a spectacular forgery, was Portstead's pet aversion. Robert's unfortunate introduction of Travers' name gave the Earl opportunity to dilate upon the heinousness of his crimes, and thence to draw a parallel between his life and Robert's aimless spendthrift one. Robert retaliated by a contemptuous remark, cuttingly personal, that whipped the color into Portstead's bloodless cheeks. He controlled himself, however, and steadily observed that there was a train leaving for London at half after eight, and that there would be a carriage at his brother's disposal at a quarter to eight. Robert responded by an oath that caused Lady Pevensey to clasp her jeweled hands over her ears in horror, and Elsie Baring to flush painfully. "'You think you're a demigod or the Lord Almighty himself because you have come into the money and title,' shouted Robert, shaking his fist in his brother's face in an access of unbridled fury. "'But to have isn't to hold. Just you remember that, you cold-blooded, domineering saint!' With this, he rushed from the room. That was the last seen of him for many anxious hours. There was a half-hearted attempt at playing bridge in the evening, but when at ten o'clock Meldrum excused himself to keep his appointment with Portstead, all were glad to avail themselves of the opportunity to escape to their rooms. Mr. Clavering observed that Lady Ursula's eyes followed Meldrum anxiously, almost fearfully, and he suspected that the interview in the library would be a stormy one. Mr. Clavering was far from satisfied with his detective efforts so far. He had really expected better of himself. But one thing at least he had discovered. Lady Pevensey had reluctantly admitted that Mary Grey had come to her practically unrecommended. Apparently she was a person of mysterious antecedents. Why Lady Pevensey should have taken such a person into her service was not clear to him, but he presumed that she had been attracted by her ladylike appearance. She was undeniably a gentlewoman. He had also learned from the same source that Mary Grey contemplated a trip to London in the morning on some private business. He had decided to go up to the city on the same train. If she had taken the necklace, this would be her chance to dispose of it. He sat up until midnight, listening for a repetition of the weird tapping of the night before, but heard nothing in any way unusual, so decided to go to bed. However, he thought it well, in case of unforeseen happenings, to keep a night-lamp burning and his dressing-gown and slippers within easy reach. He could not explain why, but there seemed something menacing in the very stillness of the old house. Finally, he dozed off to dream of all manner of impossible clues. At two o'clock in the morning he was roused by a pistol-shot. It came, apparently, from the floor below. For a moment he found himself unable to move. 
Then, shaking off the paralysis of terror that held him, he got into his dressing gown and slippers and resolutely stepped into the corridor, bearing the night lamp and armed with his silver-knobbed walking stick. Doors were opening from all parts of the house, and he was greeted by low screams and excited questions. Colonel Darrell pushed by him and sprang down the broad, curving staircase into the great main hall. Mr. Clavering was not sorry to see a pistol gleaming in his hand. The women, guests, and servants, their faces white patches in the darkness, were leaning over the square, balustraded gallery that ran around the top of the great hall and were peering down into the black gulf below. Mary Gray, however, hastened after Colonel Darrell, showing an astonishing eagerness and lack of fear. Mr. Clavering was ashamed not to follow her, but the night lamp shook in his hand as he went. He was amazed to behold Lady Ursula coming swiftly from the drawing-room, for he could not understand how she had descended the stairs before the others. He had not seen her at all until now, as she stood there before them, hastily wrapped in an evening cloak, and her face blue-white in the moonlight that streamed through the thin, high windows of the hall. "'The shot was in here!' she cried. "'I think it was in the—the library!' Mary Gray was the first to reach the library door. It was locked. There was no light under it. She knocked several times, but received no response. "'Cecil!' screamed Lady Ursula, beating against the door. "'Cecil!' "'Lady Ursula!' interposed Colonel Darrell gravely. "'We must enter this room. Have I your permission to break down the door?' She nodded mutely. She was on the verge of collapse. "'It will not be necessary to break down the door, Colonel Darrell,' spoke up Mary Gray quickly. "'Simply grasp the knob firmly in both hands and press your knee just below the lock with all your strength. It will yield.' Colonel Darrell gave her a peculiar look, but obeyed. Mr. Clavering had a feeling of repulsion toward her as the lock gave with the least possible amount of noise, and the door flew open. He had read of how burglars employed this same trick for forcing locks. How came she to know of it? The huge library lay before them, black-shadowed, awesome. There came a rush of air through the open garden door, and the moonlight flooding in made visible a dim form outstretched upon the floor. While even Colonel Darrell, rough old campaigner that he was, stopped horrified upon the threshold, Mary Gray sprang by him into the room and, dropping to her knees, bent over the still form. "'He is dead,' she said after a moment, in a hushed voice. "'Mr. Clavering, bring your lamp here.' Colonel Darrell strove to prevent Lady Ursula from entering, but she pressed past him, and, snatching the lamp from Mr. Clavering, held it over the upturned face of the dead man. "'Cecil! Oh, Cecil!' she moaned, and, swaying, was caught in Colonel Darrell's arms." End of chapter 5